be reading Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from from it you were taken. For, For dust you are, and to dust you will return." Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You can leave your Bibles open to that passage. Genesis chapter 3. We are... uh, doing a series through four different chapters of the Bible, calling it Chapters You Should Know, and spending three weeks on each of those chapters. And this is the third week that we look at Genesis 3. And there are important things that we should know from Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3 answers some really important questions, and they're why questions. Genesis 3 answers questions like, why sin? Why shame? Why fear? Why guilt? Why trying to cover up our sins? Why hiding from God? Why blaming people? Why pain? Why conflict? Why death? All of those why questions get answered in Genesis 3. So you can see how it's an important chapter and why we should know what's in this chapter. So we're going to uh, complete the chapter today, but first let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these uh, weeks in one of these first chapters of your word, 
you reveal so much to us in this chapter. Father, I pray that you would guide us as we think through this and see what you say here. Uh, Answer some of our questions, Lord. But also, uh, could you help us to really understand what this chapter means to us and how it affects us? Thank you for each person that's here to be exposed to this part of your word. Give us ears to hear. In Christ's name, amen. Well, last week I promised you that I would tell you a story about when I was a boy. Didn't have time to do it last week. Uh, because it was more blessed to hear Amy Shreve than to hear stories about me when I was a boy. Um, here's one. When I was eight or nine years old, uh, my parents, I think it was an insurance company, it was called Modern Woodman. And when your family had that insurance, you got to be part of this club called Modern Woodman. And every month on a Saturday, the families who belonged to this insurance company and, and this club had a kind of a fun day together. And we would meet at the big community building in our town. And uh, one Saturday when we were having this uh, time together, a friend of mine and I went to this big back room, which was a room we were not to be in. All the activities were to happen in the main area in front of this building. But we snuck back there, and we had a ball, a literal ball. And my friend and I played catch, because it's a big room. And we were playing catch, and uh, I don't remember if it was me or my friend, but threw the ball, and it hit this really nice, big light fixture, and uh, most of the light fixture crashed to the floor and was laying there on the concrete. So what did we do? Well, over in the corner, there was a broom and a big dustpan and a garbage can. So my friend and I went and got the broom and the dustpan, and we swept up all the pieces of this light, and... Um, we put it in this big garbage can and then we took some papers that were laying around and we put the papers in the garbage can over all the fragments of the light to cover up what we had done. Then we decided the best thing to do was hide. And I think we were pretty smart, we decided to hide in the group. So we went back to where everybody else was, and we started joining them in some things, and we just kind of hid within the group like we'd always been there. Then the, the meeting started, and the leader of it all, whose name was Hazel Nelson, uh, got up front, and before she started anything, she said, I have just been informed that someone has broken the light 
in the back room where no one was supposed to be. Does anybody know anything about that? My friend and I sat back there on our folding chairs with heavy guilt, but we said nothing. And nobody else said anything. Until later, we just, my friend and I dropped a couple names and uh, told Hazel that, you know, we saw so-and-so back there. A little blaming there, right? So, I think Hazel went to her grave never knowing who broke that light. Because we didn't tell anybody. It was our secret, the two of us. And it's really interesting that 60 years later, I'm a pastor and my friend is a federal judge. But why did we do that? I mean, not only why were we in this room we weren't supposed to be in, not only why did we cover up what we'd done, not only why did we hide ourselves within the group, why did we blame? Why did we drop these names? We did it because of a conversation that took place in paradise between a serpent being used as a vessel by Satan and the first woman. That's why we did that. Because that's when sin came into the world. And along with sin, shame and the desire to cover up that shame. And along with shame came fear and the desire to hide. And along with that came blame and the desire to transfer guilt to somebody else. The one thing my friend and I did not do, and we never did, is confess. Never did. We followed the pattern of Genesis 3 and what happened in that chapter. Back at the beginning, as the first woman has this conversation with the devil who's speaking through this serpent, and he played with her mind and raised doubts and, and questions about what God had said. And whether or not he was good or was he keeping things from the woman and her husband. And of course, she gives in, desires the fruit of this one tree they couldn't eat. She eats, gives it to her husband And Adam eats. And as we saw, Adam then becomes responsible for sin coming into the world through that one man. And we become sinners. And we become people who cover up our shame, 
who hide out of fear when we've sinned and who blame other people for our sin. And that's where it started. It was a conversation in paradise that changed everything. And today we're going to see the last part of the chapter, and we're going to see how God responds to all of this. The sin, the, the covering up, the, the hiding, the blaming. How does God respond? We're going to work through the passage that uh, Chris read for us uh, kind of quickly. And I've, I've divided this into two parts. Most of what we have left in chapter 3 has to do with the consequences. God is a just God. And in most of the rest of this chapter, we see the justice of God. As he lays out consequences for what the man and woman had done. Their disobedience. Their sin. So we'll look at what those consequences were. And then there's one verse <laughs> that talks about the grace of God. And it's about covering. So consequences and covering. Let's look at the consequences first that God lays down by his justice, starting in verse 14. It says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, So here are the consequences for the serpent, the the snake. And it's interesting, in these consequences, it looks to me like God is speaking to the physical serpent, the snake that was used, but then he moves into addressing the other serpent, the one who used the physical serpent, the devil. And we learn from the New Testament, it was the devil who was speaking through this animal. So let's see what the consequences are. Verse 14, because you have done this, he says to the serpent, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. So there is this special curse upon this one creature for being used. If you ask my wife, she understands it totally. She can see why it would be the snake that's cursed above all other animals. You can ask her about it. There's, there's this hostility between Janine and snakes. And I was going to bring a snake. I was going to try and figure out a way to have an object lesson here. But I love my wife. And so I didn't. But... God does say to this creature, this one creature that was used in this temptation, you will be cursed above all other animals. How so? That animal from that day on would crawl. See what it says? You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Could it be? Could it be? That up until this point, the serpent, the snakes, had legs. It sounds like this is a change. It sounds like this is something that is happening because of what occurred earlier in the chapter. And that from this point on, as part of the curse, the serpent would crawl on its belly in the dust. 
And then, like I said, there seems to be a movement here in what serpent God is speaking to. He, he, he's talked about consequences for this animal, the serpent that was used, but doesn't it sound like now he's talking to somebody else? He says in verse 15, And I will put enmity, or hostility, between you and the woman, and between your seed, your offspring, and hers, her seed. And the reason I think he's talking now to the spiritual serpent, the devil who used the animal, is he goes on and says, he. Was that Who's being called he? The woman's seed, right? The woman's offspring. I'll put hostility between you. I think he's speaking to the devil, that serpent. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, her seed and your seed. And when he refers to the woman's seed, he says he, a person. Not many people. But he, a person, will crush your head. He, this seed of the woman, this one that comes from the woman, will crush your head. I think speaking to Satan, the serpent, who used the animal. The woman's seed, he will crush your head. And you will strike his head heal. Does that make sense at all? Especially thinking of way back when this is written. Can I suggest to you, and you can think about it and, and uh, check it out, could it be that this is our first reference to the Messiah? Our first reference to Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. He will crush the head of Satan, the serpent. And Satan, the serpent, will strike Jesus, the seed of the woman's heel. Which is more severe, to crush the head or strike the heel? Obviously crushing the head. Could this be the first reference to what happened on the cross, where Satan may have struck Jesus in the heel, but through his death, Jesus crushed Satan's head. This could be our first indication that something's coming, someone is coming. He goes on, we have consequences for the woman because of the sin. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. And your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So the consequences to the woman, two of them. The first is pain in childbirth. Not childbirth. <laughs> Because God had instructed the man and the woman to multiply. But the consequence here for sin was the pain. 
Any woman here who's given birth that didn't experience any pain at that time? The pain, it looks like, is a consequence of sin coming into this world. You will have pain in childbirth. The second consequence is what I would call a power struggle in marriage. This can't be a positive thing because it's in the context of consequences for the sin. So it's got to be a negative thing. And he says, another consequence for the woman is your desire will be for your husband. I don't think he's talking about this romantic desire and this fluttering heart for her husband. I don't think that's the desire he's talking about. In fact, if you go to chapter 4, Verse 7, the exact same words, desire and rule, are used in another setting. And if you're familiar with the story, chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel, children of Adam and Eve. And Cain is upset because God has not recognized his offering, but recognized his brothers. And you have this, this first feud between siblings. Cain is really upset about this, and God confronts him. And in 4.7, God says to Cain, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, and here, look at this. He says, Sin is crouching at your door. It, sin, desires to have you or control you. But you must master it. You must subdue it and put it down. Same words, desire and rule, as appear in these consequences for sin to the woman. God is warning Cain in chapter 4 that if he doesn't respond properly to what's gone on, sin is going to Master him. He says, sin is crouching and it's ready. Its desire is to to master you, to take control. But you must subdue it. You must rule over it. You must put it down. Same words. What is God saying to the woman as a consequence for sin? Let me suggest that what he's saying is to the woman... Your desire will be for your husband. You will desire to rule. You will desire to control him and to master him. And he will respond by trying to subdue you, put you down, dominate you. And here we find conflict in marriage between the wife and the husband this power struggle. And where did it start? In paradise. Because of a conversation that changed everything. It even changed marriage. Because sin came into the picture. And it causes this struggle in many marriages. It always has. Of the woman's desire being for the husband and his role to control him, to master him. But then the husband 
reacting by ruling and subduing and putting down, and you have this conflict, this struggle. Why? Because of what we read in Genesis 3. Sin brought that into the world. It's a consequence of sin. Then he talks to the man in verse 17. Consequences. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of Adam's choice and because of that choice bringing sin into the world, even creation itself was cursed. It was impacted by sin. And he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to struggle with creation. You're going to struggle with it. It's not going to cooperate with you like it has been. It's going to change. And by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to deal with creation and its thorns and its thistles and its weeds. And it's going to be a struggle, implying that it wasn't a struggle before sin came into the picture. That Adam was able to uh, cultivate and, and rule and, and uh, deal with creation, and creation just cooperated. It was wonderful. But God says, now that you have done this, now that sin is into the world, cursed is the ground, and it's not going to cooperate with you anymore. And it's going to be painful, your conflict with creation, as you work by the sweat of your brow. So there'll be this painful toil. And if you want to read about this influence on creation that sin coming into the world had, look at Romans 8 sometime, starting in verse 19. Because there it talks about how creation was impacted by sin. And creation itself is groaning, waiting for the day when that'll... Change, because one of the consequences for the man had to do with his relationship with creation. It was going to be hard. It's going to be painful. Then he goes on in verse uh, 19 at the end. He says, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Physical death. Death came into the picture for man because of sin coming into the picture. He came from the dust. He would return to the dust. He would now experience physical death. Isn't that what God said in chapter 2, verse 17, to the man? You can eat of any tree. In paradise, it's just that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat of that, it's going to bring death. You'll die. And here God reminds him of that. You're going to die. You're going to experience physical death. Painful toil in dealing with creation, physical death, and then the chapter ends God saying, and you're going to lose paradise. He sends him out of paradise, out of Eden. Separates him from this wonderful place. 
We see that in verse 22. The Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, that was a tree they were eating from. That was a tree they could eat from, the tree of life. And apparently, it sustained life. They would have lived forever. But now in their sinful condition, now that sin was in the picture, that changed. And so man is sent out of paradise so that he will not continue to eat of that tree and live forever. And so the Lord banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Paradise lost. Sent out. No longer to live forever by eating from that tree. Those were the consequences. Every one of those consequences, whether it was to the serpent, the physical serpent, or the spiritual serpent, Satan, who used the animal, or whether the consequences were for the woman or for the man, and consequences that affected creation, they all had to do with change. Remember, the conversation in paradise changed everything. And these are some of the changes, the consequences for sin. And you could boil the consequences listed here down into three words. The consequences of sin had to do with pain, pain in in some way, conflict in some way, and death. Take your study sheet with the scripture on your own this week. Look back through it and see if you can't just fit every one of those consequences into one of those themes. Pain, conflict, or death. That was the Lord's response to the disobedience and sin. Of Adam. But this is so great. Placed right in the middle of this passage, there's one verse. Surrounded by the justice of God and his response to sin, you have verse 21. And it's about grace. I don't know if you've caught that when you read it, but it's about grace. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He covered them. Now, they had already covered themselves trying to get rid of the shame, right? Earlier in the chapter, when they realized what they had done, and they felt shame for the very first time, it says they took fig leaves 
and made the first clothing and covered themselves. Man had made his own covering by his own efforts and could I say by his own works. He covered himself after sinning. But now God is going to replace man's effort to deal with his sin with a new set of clothing. And the text says, skins, hide. Where would that come from? Something had to die. Right? Something had to die to get skins, hide, to make this clothing to cover the man and the woman. It looks like it took the sacrifice, the sacrificial death of some creature that was totally innocent of what had happened for God to cover this man and woman. Their covering wasn't good enough. God covered them. And it took the sacrificial death of something that was totally innocent. The first death ever. And that first death led to the man and woman being covered by God. The gracious God. And I would suggest that verse 21 in Genesis 3 begins the redemptive story, the redemptive plan of God, which we can follow through the rest of Scripture, right? Because eventually now God will choose a nation, a people, and he will work through and in that nation, that people, until we come to the place in history where through that nation, through that people, comes the seed of the woman, this person, Jesus Christ, God made flesh. And that person, that seed of the woman, goes to the cross. That serpent Satan, striking him on the heel, but he crushing, defeating the head of the serpent, Satan. And that cross, that sacrificial death of an innocent person, Jesus, provided for sin to be dealt with and addressed. But it looks like that whole redemptive story of deliverance and rescue and salvation from sin starts in Genesis 3:21. When God replaces the covering that man put together and chose to deal with his sin with a covering that came from a sacrificial death and began the redemption story, the redemption plan. The grace of God.
the justice of God with all these consequences for sin, but the grace of God in the midst of it to address man's sin. And that's Genesis 3. It's a chapter you should know. It's a chapter we should all be familiar with because it answers a lot of the why questions. It's an important chapter. Some concluding statements from Genesis 3 that would sum it up there at the bottom of your sheet. Through Adam, there is sin and its consequences for all of us, for all of man, all of mankind. Through Adam, there is sin and its consequences. But through Jesus Christ, there is redemption and eternal life. Conclude with me in the book of Romans, chapter 12. We looked at this two weeks ago as we saw the first part of Genesis 3. But let's go back to it. In Romans 5, if you recall, after seeing how sin came into the world, how um, through this conversation... Sin came into the picture. We looked at Romans 5, starting with verse 12, which takes us back there and says that's what brought sin into the world. We're all sinners because of what happened there in paradise. And if you remember, I read for you from verse 12 and on about six or seven statements. And I suggested some people would see those statements as unfair because they all say through one man, sin and judgment and condemnation came upon all of us. Doesn't sound fair. I want to read something else from that passage that doesn't sound fair either, but I thank God it's not fair. So try to keep up with me here. Uh, let's start in verse 15, Romans 5.15. It says, The gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Through one man, sin came into the world, but through one man, there's grace. Verse uh, 16. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Through the one man, Adam, came condemnation. Through the one man, Jesus, came justification, salvation. Verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See the pattern here? Verse 18. 
Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. You see what Paul is saying? He said through that one man and what happened in the garden, sin came into the world and it affected everybody, changed everything. All are sinners. There's judgment. There's condemnation, separation from God. But he says, in every case, through the one man, Jesus, and his work on the cross, his sacrificial death as the innocent one, through that one man and his one act came grace and mercy and salvation and life to anyone who would receive it and believe in him and do what my friend and I did not do that Saturday, confess. Now, we may say it doesn't sound fair that through one man's sin, we're all sinners. We may think that's not fair. But friends, it's not fair that through one man's righteous act, anyone who believes can be saved. If you're going to reject one, then you've got to reject the other. Fairness is overrated. Thank God. Salvation isn't fair. It's grace. It's undeserved. But it's there for us. And Genesis 3 begins that whole redemptive story. It starts with bad news that affects us all. It ends with good news that affects anyone who will confess their sins and turn to Jesus. You should know what's in Genesis 3. It's important. Friends, there's, a, there's an alternative to your shame, your sin, your fear, your hiding, your covering, your blaming, your guilt. There's an alternative. And it's being freed from that by the redemption in Jesus Christ. You'll be freed from that not by your own efforts to cover up and deal with your sin. You'll be freed from those things through Jesus, the grace of God. Confess to him. Turn from your sin. Seek his forgiveness. And surrender your life to Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for um, this scripture. Way back, where you help us to understand the origin of so much, the origin of disobedience and sin, the origin of shame and fear and guilt, the origin of dealing with those things through covering and hiding and blaming, 
the origin of so many of these things that were the consequence of sin. Father, you answer so many of our why questions. But Lord, you also point to your grace. And I thank you for that. I thank you that right there in Genesis 3, your redemptive plan began. And I thank you, Lord, because I have experienced that. And many here thank you because they've experienced your redemption. And it started in Genesis 3. Thank you. If there's anyone here, Lord, who hasn't experienced that redemption, I I just pray, God, that you would somehow use the teaching from Genesis 3 to draw them to yourself, to your redemption, to the forgiveness of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.